Next Sunday, on Christmas, as Pastor Matt mentioned in the announcements, we'll have one service at 11 o'clock in this room. So if you're in town and you're able to make it, we would love to, love to have you here. And we will have a specifically Christmas-themed message uh, that, that week. And then on New Year's, a New Year's-themed message. And then on January 8th, we'll continue in our series through the book of Ephesians. But we continue in Ephesians today in a series, the title of which is on the screen, Your Place in God's Plan. For 2,000 years of church history and in many parts of our world today, a Christian can be arrested and tried, jailed, perhaps even killed for simply following Jesus. Now that's foreign to us here, thankfully. But I want to ask you to think about for just a moment, if you were living in, for instance, a Muslim-dominated country, or if things changed here, which they could. And if you were put on trial and accused of being a Christian, would they be able to marshal enough evidence to actually convict? That is, what is that about your life and about my life that suggests when people look at our priorities and our allegiances and our values that we are distinctly different, that we are followers of Jesus. And what should that evidence be? We've been looking for many months through the book of Ephesians. In its six chapters, they are divided into two major sections. The first major section is the first three chapters. And when we went through those first three chapters, we saw all that God has done in his grand design for salvation, rescue, deliverance for you and for me, going all the way back to eternity past, coming to time present, and looking into eternity future. And then there is a transition beginning in chapter 4 to the second major section of this book. And at the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul, who wrote this letter, says, I urge you then, as a prisoner for the Lord, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And when he says a life worthy, it doesn't mean that we measure, that we make ourselves measure up to all that God has done for us. He said over and over again that what he has done for us is by his grace and not by our works. But rather, it's to be consistent. It's a life that's to be consistent with the calling and the great gracious gifts that God has bestowed upon us. Now, what does that life look like? that's consistent with the calling that we've received. Well, we're told in chapter 4 that we've been called to a different life. The word that's used is holy. Holy means set apart or different. And beginning in chapter 4 and verse 25, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 4, we get a description of what that life looks like. And there are six areas of the Christian life that should be evidence of the fact that we are changed people, different people, a holy people for our God. I have them listed for you at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program. Because the book of Ephesians uses the terminology put off certain things and put on certain things, literally take off certain kinds of clothing, metaphorically, and put on other articles of dress. I called it dress for success. And this is what we wear. And you see the six items there. It says we wear truth and peace and generosity and grace and love and purity. And as we saw last week, 
This is what a Christian looks like. But last week we asked the question, why should a Christian pursue that kind of life? That's what is to adorn our lives. But why should I go to the effort, why should you go to the the effort to pursue that kind of life? In the next 17 verses from chapter 5 and and verse 5, through chapter 5 and verse 21, give four reasons why a Christian should pursue a lifestyle that's consistent with his calling. You see in the outline? We saw the first two of those four last week. Because unholiness will be judged in the future. Because holiness will be rewarded now. Today we're going to see the other two reasons why, from verses 15 through 21, we should go about pursuing this life that's consistent with our calling, a a holy life. We should pursue a holy life, I say in your outline, because it demonstrates wisdom. And we see that in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 5. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Now, in the verses that we saw last week, beginning in verse 5 and through verse 14, we saw this theme, this contrast between light and darkness. And now, in this passage, the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian goes from light and darkness to wisdom and foolishness. Verse 15 says, Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So what is this wisdom that is to characterize our lives and is to be a motivation for us to live this different kind of life to which we've been called? Wisdom in the Bible, many of you know, is skilled application of knowledge. Skillful application of what you know. You know stuff, you've been taught stuff from God in His Word, and those things now are to be applied in everyday living skillfully. That's what the wise man or woman does. And so what is it that you and I know... That's to be skillfully applied. Well, you know, says the book of Ephesians, what you once were. And that God has gone to incredible lengths to call you out of the world and to himself. And you know that there are characteristic attitudes and words and behaviors given in chapter 4 that we have seen together for the life of a Christian. And there are those same kinds of opposite characteristics for a non-Christian. You know that God's objective is that you become like Him, says verse 22 of chapter 4. And that requires that your resemblance to non-Christians, your resemblance to what you used to be, is ever fading. And verse 15 says, be careful as you do this in how you walk the Christian walk, how you live the Christian life. Be careful. Now, why does it say to to be careful? Because the idea is that as we go through life in a fallen world, we don't have a smooth path. 
Life in a fallen world is not smooth for any of us, but rather we have to be very careful in re- with regard to the steps that we take. Making skillful application of what we know, making right choices in light of the circumstances, often difficult circumstances, that God allows us to be placed in. In 2007, many of us were able to take a missions trip to Mexico. And one of the things I noticed around many of the the houses uh, in Mexico was that they would have a a wall, often tall, surrounding the house for safety. But to to add safety to it, at the top, there would be these shards of glass sticking up that had been stuck in the cement at the top when it was soft, and now it's hardened there to make it difficult for anybody to get over the wall. Sometimes you'll see an animal, a cat, or something like that, walking on a wall like that, and walking very carefully, watching each step. And that's the idea here, that we are to be extremely careful, circumspect in the way we walk through this life in a fallen world, that we make the right choices, take the right steps, making skillful application of what we have come to know about ourselves, about God, and His purpose for us in His world. And here's another thing that you know. You know that Jesus is the light of the world. And unbelievably, He calls His followers the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, Jesus said to his followers, to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And you'll recall from last week, from verses 5 through 14, particularly verses 13 and 14, that light exposes and it transforms. That is, light makes visible what was in darkness. It exposes But it also makes light of that which was in darkness, that which it comes in contact with. Everything exposed by the light, verses 13 and 14 say, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. Now that's what the NIV says. Another translation says it this way, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light kind of weird wording. But as I tried to explain last week, it has an evangelistic context to it. It's saying that the people that we come in contact with as God's light in His world, God uses that, uses our lives to transform those around us. It has an effect on those around us. As a matter of fact, two verses after Jesus said, you are the light of the world, in Matthew 5, notice what He said. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And so the context then is that we saw last week is the effect that our different holy lives have on those around us. Now this passage in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, that says be very careful then how you walk this Christian walk, how you live your different holy life in a fallen world, doing so as wise rather than unwise. The parallel passage to this in Colossians chapter 3 gives us this evangelistic context. Now I say parallel passage in Colossians. 
you've been with us, you know I've said several times that the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, you lay them side by side, they have the same content and sometimes a little bit different wording. One will illuminate what's being taught in, in the other. And Colossians says this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Do you see that this is a, a context now of the effect that we have on those around us in a fallen world who have not yet come to the light that is Christ? In Ephesians 5, verse 16, we're told, make the most of every opportunity that you have to be light to those who are in darkness. Make the most of every opportunity. Seize the moment. The King James Version says, redeem the time. Now, many of you are familiar with that word, redeem. It means to, it was a marketplace term. It means to buy back. It was used of, of slaves in the marketplace in New Testament times who were, who were bought out of slavery. They were redeemed with a price. And so something was given up for the freedom or the ownership of that, of that slave, as the case may be. And so here, redeeming the time, making the most of every opportunity means it costs you something. You give something up for something else that's more valuable. You prioritize the use of your time. And you redeem the time that you use from lesser things. You reprioritize your life. Making the most of every opportunity so that we live for the purpose that God has called us to. The word that's translated opportunity, making the most of every opportunity, is literally make the most of every moment. No time to waste. Young Jonathan Edwards said in the 18th century, in his famous resolutions as a young man, resolved before God to do 70, 70 amazing things, and he pursued these things with his life. But here's, here's one of them. He wrote in 1734, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Convicting, isn't it? When we think about the things that we use our time on. And God has said, I've called you to a purpose. That purpose includes you being light in darkness, exposing what is in darkness, but transforming those who are in darkness as, as well. Make the most then of every moment and every then opportunity that I give you for that purpose. And the end of verse 16 says, here's why. Because the days are evil. Now you think about that. You should do this. You should live as wise and not as unwise. You should make the most of every opportunity. Here's why. Because the days are evil. Hmm. So since Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, since the first sin, can you all think of any time when the days were not evil? There's never been a time when the days were not evil. And there will never be a time when the days are not evil, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and fully transforms his world 
into its intended design. So why does it say then you should do this because the days are evil? It's not that there were ever days that were not evil after the fall. It's the days you have to fulfill your purpose are evil. Understanding that you need to purposefully make the most of every moment God gives you because you're living that life, you're walking that walk in the context of darkness and fallenness and evil. It's always been the case with God's people. It will always be the case with God's people until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. Verse 17 then says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Therefore, now resumes the thought of verse 15. Here's how you should live then, very carefully, very circumspectly. This is the way you should walk. And therefore, it means not being foolish, but understanding what the Lord's will is. It uses unwise in verse 15, and now it uses a foolish in verse 17. Two different, two different words. The word that's used in verse 17 is a really strong word. Stupid. Don't live a life that's spent in stupidity and senseless folly. And to understand is, in verse 17, to give your mind to something so as to take hold of it. It suggests an effort that has to be made. And so it has the sense of trying to grasp what the Lord's will is as I walk through this life. Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand. Make effort to understand. Try to grasp what the Lord's will is. Now, what's that mean? Well, there are two senses in which God has a will for you and for me. For lack of a better term, God has his general will. For every follower of Jesus, his general will is given in the pages of the book that you hold in your lap. And he says these are the kinds of characteristics that you should be known for, the kinds of things that we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians. This is how you should pursue your life. It's God's general will, generally, for every Christian, every follower of Jesus. But then there's also his particular for you, for me. His personal will for you. And I want you to know, friends, and, and I, I believe this is extremely important for Christian people to grasp, that God's particular will, His personal will for you and me, flows from pursuing His general will. You do what Jesus says in the Bible. You pursue what God says in the Bible. And your heavenly Father, who cares for you more than you can know, will providentially guide your path and your steps to open up for you the opportunities, now hear this, that he has pre-designed for you. Remember Ephesians 2.10? You are God's workmanship. You are God's, the Greek word is poema, his work of art, his masterpiece. You are God's craftsmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. 
And so I'm pursuing God's general will, what he tells me and all Christians to pursue. And then in the course of life, walking carefully through life, he opens doors and opportunities and moves me into circumstances, sometimes difficult circumstances, for my good and his glory, so that his personal particular will for me flows out of my pursuit of his general will given in Scripture. To put it simply, do what he says, and he'll lead you where you want to go. Now notice, I said where you want to go. Really? Now if you've been here for our prayer series that will continue next hour, praying with your eyes open, we've seen that we need to align our will and what we want with what God wants, which is always best for us. And we can actually come to a place, the Bible says, where we have aligned our will with God, and the Bible actually says, Paul says, I pray for a group of people in the New Testament that God will grant every desire of yours. Because those desires have been aligned with God's. I'll give you an illustration in my own life. In my early 20s, I was serving in a very, very small church. We had a handful of young adults my age. And I, there, were, there were no single young adult ladies in our group. And I had numerous people, well-intended people, tell me, you know what you ought to do? Is on Sunday evenings, don't go to your church. Go to a bigger church that has, in effect, a bigger market. And I remember being tempted to do that. And I remember making a conscious decision that says, no, God has called me to serve with this body. And until he moves me from this body, I will serve with this body as faithfully as I can. And in pursuing his general will, he will carve out for me his particular personal will. Now, I won't bore you with all the circumstances. But God brought Kim into my life 27 years ago. God does that. You do what he says, and he will lead you where you want. So why do we lead holy lives? Why should we pursue different kinds of lives? Because it demonstrates wisdom. But here's a fourth reason in your outline. Because you have the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness was all too common in the pagan world of the New Testament. And cautions, several of them in your New Testament, show that it also presented a temptation for Christians. The danger of drunkenness lies not only in drinking itself, but in what that drinking may induce. Verse 18 says, debauchery. All kinds of things, heinous, ungodly things, flow then from drunkenness. The word debauchery is the same word for wild living. 
that's used in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. Do you remember him? And he took his father's inheritance and he went and he spent it on riotous, wild kinds of, of living. In classical Greek, it signified extravagant squandering of money and of the physical appetites. Do not be drunk with wine. It leads to those kinds of things, debauchery. Now, the theme of these next few verses is not wine. It's the contrast between being drunk with wine, being controlled by wine, and as we'll see, being controlled by the Holy Spirit. But let me just briefly comment on this issue of alcohol and wine. One of the things for which I am profoundly thankful for in my upbringing is that there was never any alcohol in our home. And I thank God for that. In my entire 49 years, I've never been exposed to the temptation of alcohol. And I thank God for that. I have three brothers. They're all alcoholics. They found their way to alcohol even though alcohol wasn't in our home. Friends, hear, now hear this. Parents, hear this. You don't need to help your kids find the temptations that are out there. They can find them. And woe be to that kid who finds it and recognizes that he has a disposition toward alcoholism, drunkenness. A physical disposition toward that that is now fed by what he's intaking. The only way to find out if you have that is to imbibe. And if you don't imbibe, you won't find out. And that would be a glorious thing. My three brothers are, guess what the chances are? I probably would be too. But I was not exposed to it. God protected me from, from that. The Bible prohibits drunkenness. I've come to believe it does not completely prohibit drink. And therefore, unlike many churches, it is not a requirement to join our church that you commit that you will abstain from all alcoholic consumption. It's not a requirement. But wisdom, I believe, dictates that if you're going to choose to do that, you be very, very discreet in the way you do that, especially those of you who have children, and especially those of you who have been given charge over children. Friends, this is, this is deadly poison to some. And drunkenness leads to the kinds of debauchery, the kinds of things that the Bible describes in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Just read that this afternoon. And ask yourself if that's good for you or anybody you know. And so I am telling you with regard to alcohol, walk in wisdom. Make wise choices. Think about the effect of your actions on other people. Do not be drunk with wine. Verse 18. Which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that command to be filled means to be, as I'm going to demonstrate, under the control of. You see, those who are drunk are under the control of the alcohol. 
but we are to instead be under the control of the Spirit. That's the contrast, or the comparison, and then the rest is contrast. And so there's what I'm filled with versus how I'm, I'm filled. And let me explain what I mean. Verse 18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. So is that saying that we are to pursue having more of the Spirit, being filled up with more of the Spirit, some, somehow in a quantitative, spatial kind of sense? Or is it saying this is how you're to pursue your Christian life, by being filled with the Spirit? The translation in verse 18 that says be filled with the Spirit implies that, being, that we're to be filled with the content of the Spirit, more Spirit. But it's not. That's not what it means. Let me give an illustration. If I say, fill this swimming pool with water, then I'm talking about the content of what the pool is to be filled with, with, with water. And if that's the way it's being used here, then it would mean be filled up with more of the Spirit, just like the pool gets filled up with more water. But isn't there another way that can be said? I can say, fill the pool with a hose. Or fill the pool with water by a hose. And that's the way it's being used in verse 18. Be filled by means of the Spirit. It's not fill up with more of the Spirit. But rather, it is the Spirit by which you are going to be filled. It's not that you're going to have more of the Spirit, but rather that the Spirit must have more of you. And so if you're a, a Christian, you already have the Spirit, says the Bible, in some measure. In fact, Scripture says this, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Everyone who is a Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that is, has a special relationship now with the Holy Spirit that you did not have prior to coming to Christ. And so this being filled with the Spirit then is not like a light switch that's either on or off. You're either filled with the Spirit or you're, or you're not. It's rather like a dimmer switch. Sometimes the light is bright. Sometimes, that is, the Spirit is in more control and less control. Sometimes the light is bright, sometimes not so bright. And verse 18 does not say now what it is the Spirit is used to fill us with. But we can see what it is by seeing the same word for being filled used in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Notice chapter 3 and verse 19. Chapter 3 and verse 19 is in the midst of a prayer that Paul is praying for those to whom he wrote in Ephesus. And he says in verse 19, I pray, now notice this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Scholar Daniel Wallace says the fullness of God rever refers to God's moral attributes, that is, his characteristics. And here's what it means then. In chapter 5 and verse 18, when we're told to be filled with the Spirit, be under the control of the Spirit, it means then the Spirit is at work in us to make us like God in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. 
Be under the control of the Spirit who is seeking to produce this in you. And this command, be filled with the Spirit. I won't give a whole Greek lesson here, but it's in a tense called the present tense. It's in something called the imperative mood, meaning it's a command. And the present tense means it's a continuing action. It's something that you're to make your habit and my habit. This being controlled, filled by the Spirit. It's something that has begun and needs to continue. We see an example of it in chapter 5 and verse 2. Chapter 5 and verse 2 there, we're told to live a life of love. And the, the verb, the command, live, is written in the present tense, something that's to continual, to be continual, habitual. But it's something that's already started. Back in chapter 1 and verse 15 of Ephesians, Paul, who, told, who says in chapter 5, live a life of love, says that you're already loving God's people. And now he's saying in chapter 5 and verse 2, continue that. It's a command to continue being placed under the control of the Holy Spirit. So what do I need to do to be under, to be controlled by the Spirit? Well, I want you to notice the results of being filled or being controlled by the Spirit. And then we'll see what it is we need to do to have that as a habitual way of life for us. Notice verse 19. The result of being filled, controlled with the Spirit, verse 19, is that we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We sing and make music in our heart to the Lord. And then we're given some other results of being filled with the Spirit that we'll see in a moment. But notice those right now, that it results in us speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now that same passage, that same phrase of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is found in Colossians 3, where it says this in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now notice carefully. Ephesians 5 and verse 18 says, be filled with the Spirit, and this is what flows from that. And now Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 is saying, in place of be filled with the Spirit, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this is what flows from that. And so theologian Robert Raymond has written this. He says these two ideas, both highlighting a divine act, are practically identical. To be filled with the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Word of Christ. To be indwelt by the Word of Christ is to be filled, controlled with the Spirit. One must never separate the Spirit from Christ's Word or Christ's Word from the Spirit. The Spirit works by and with Christ's Word. And Christ's Word works by and with the Spirit. As we let the Word of Christ dwell in us, that is, as we yield and submit ourselves to God and His Word, then we are controlled by the Spirit. The more we submit to, yield to, and obey the Word of God, the more the Spirit is able to control our lives and use us for the glory of Jesus. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with the Spirit under the control of the word of Christ, the Spirit of God. What does that entail for us then? It means you care about the word of Christ, doesn't it? It means you desire to know the word of Christ. What does God say to me? What does God want for me? Where are there areas in my life that are not yielded, submitted to God, that he tells me need to be brought under his lordship? I learn that from his word. I learn his word. I think about his word. I meditate on his word. And if I do that, then here's what results. Again, verse 19. Verses 19 through 21. If I am under the control of the Spirit, under the control of the Word of Christ, then four things result. One is fellowship with other believers who have the same Spirit. Verse 19, we speak to one another. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we seek, sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord. So the first effect of me being listed here, the first effect of me being controlled by the Spirit, by the Word of Christ, is fellowship with other believers who have the same Spirit. And notice, <laughs> it's in singing. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but we sang earlier. Everybody sing? And, and by the way, <laughs> notice it is, Speaking to one another with these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, people are supposed to hear you sing. You say, dude, you haven't heard me sing. <coughs> Psalm 100, <laughs> make a joyful noise. <laughs> Not necessarily a pleasant noise. <laughs> But you know what? One of the most blessed and most pleasant things that God has given as a gift in this life to his people is to hear his people overflow in praise to him, in unison to him. Whether we can sing beautifully or not. Some of you were at my mom's funeral earlier this year. And I shared a number of blessings that I experienced with my dear godly mom. She could not carry a tune in a bucket. But I remember for years as a boy, standing next to her in church and hearing her sing as loud as she could in praise to Jesus. We do that with each other. Now, there are all kinds of implications of that. If I'm under the control of the Spirit, I want to be with God's people so that I can be spoken to by them and I can speak to them. In unison, we can lift our voices in song and praise to the same Lord, the one Lord and the one faith and the one baptism that chapter 4 speaks of, the unity that we have because of the Spirit. So if you don't want to be with God's people and you don't want to befriend God's people, and you don't want to be a help to God's people and be helped by God's people. Friends, that's an indication that you're controlled by something other than the Spirit. One of the things that happens is we have fellowship with other believers who have the same Spirit. But here's another thing. 
There are four of them. It issues forth in worship to God. The end of verse 19, sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. At the end of verse 19, we're not only singing to one another, but we're singing to the Lord as well. In worship to the Lord. And so I, you all hear me pray often on the Lord's Day. And I say, Lord, ultimately we have gathered for an audience of one. But I choose my words carefully. I say, ultimately. Ultimately, our praise is rendered to God in worship to Him. But we are also proximately speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those who are controlled by the Spirit engage in fellowship with those who have that same Spirit and worship to the God who gave that Spirit. And thirdly, verse 20, in thanksgiving to God, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm under the control of the Spirit, letting the Word of Christ dwell in me richly, I have learned that a loving Father holds my life in His hands. And therefore, I can give thanks to Him now notice, it's not just in everything, for everything. Yikes. You see, giving thanks in everything means I give thanks in the midst of the difficulty and the good times. But giving thanks for everything means that I have come to understand that though this circumstance is dark, it is temporary. And though I don't know why it's happening, it is not outside the control of my loving Father. That's why verse 20 is careful to remind us we're giving thanks to God who? God the Father. Because I'm His son and I'm His daughter. And He has designed this circumstance, difficult though it be, for my good and His glory. And then fourthly, those who are controlled by the Spirit, the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. Show the effect of that in fellowshipping with those who have the same Spirit, rendering worship to our God, giving thanks to Him for everything. And then verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now verse 21 is a separate verse in your NIV, so it might look like it's disconnected from verses 18 through 20. But verse, verses 18 through 21 are one sentence in Greek. And so this submitting to one another is connected to the being filled with the Spirit. And one of the effects of being under the control of the Spirit, under the control of the Word of Christ, is that we submit to one another. What's it mean? The word submit means to place yourself under. And so we place ourselves under one another. Practically, what's that mean? It means that we place ourselves under the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That in humility, Philippians chapter 2, we consider others better than ourselves. That we pursue an attitude and a lifestyle of deference for the good of others. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the most heinous crimes that the enemy of God, Satan, 
has inflicted upon God's church and God's church has been complicit in is the disunity that often exists amongst God's people. It is not the control of the Spirit that produces that. And yet, friends, it is, it is rampant. I've seen it in my 49 years, in church after church, where people care about their own good more than the good of others. And when that's the case, when we're not deferring to one another, when we're not placing ourselves under the need, needs of one another, it is a clear sign that the Word of Christ is not dwelling in us richly, that we are not filled with the Spirit. Now, these are all things that our God tells us are reasons for us to pursue this different, this holy life. We pursue this different life because holiness is going to be judged in the future. I have on your outline. It's going to be, unholiness will be judged in the future. Holiness is rewarded now because it demonstrates the wisdom that must be seen in a dark and foolish world. And because as God's child, you have the Holy Spirit. I ask you, friend, are the things that this passage says characteristic of your life? If not, and if you desire that that be the case, then if you've come to Jesus Christ, it's the Holy Spirit doing a work in you to dwell in you richly, to control you. And when we bow and pray in just a moment, you can confess, ask forgiveness on the basis of the blood of Jesus, and begin reading God's Word, studying God's Word, being with God's people, and demonstrating the control of the Holy Spirit in ways that Ephesians 5 says. If you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, then you're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches you're under the control of another spirit. And you must come under the control of God's Holy Spirit. And that is done by coming to God through Jesus Christ. You're apart from God until you come to Him through Jesus. Now, how do you come to Him? Notice, realize who you are. That you're separated from God because of your sin. All of us are separated from God because of our sin. But recognize that a good and gracious God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He has died on the cross. God, at Christmas, came to die for you and to pay the penalty for your sin. And you repent of your sin. Lord, I want to repent means I want to go your way, not my way. I want to follow you now. I'm going to give my life to you. And you pray from your heart to God, rescue me, deliver me on the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your own words, from your heart to God, ask him to give you this relationship that you most desperately need. Let's bow together.